This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome to Episode 6 of Season 3 of the How We Got Here podcast. We made it, pandemic and all. Thank you for sticking with us. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa, a podcast nerd, history buff, and professional storyteller for NBC12 in Richmond. I am super excited about this episode of the podcast and my cohorts, Kate Albright and Colton Weekly, worked so hard on this season. We hope you've enjoyed it. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of May 25th through the 31st. Richmond is home to something that is so unique, so Richmond, that it separates the city from much of the rest of the country, even the world. But it's not a natural feature like the James River. It's a man-made one, something that's been continually manufactured here for 130 years. Monument Avenue. The tree-lined street extends some five miles from Richmond into neighboring Henrico County. When distinguished guests visit Virginia's capital city, Monument Avenue is often part of their journey. That includes Winston Churchill, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, even Britain's Queen Elizabeth. The name Monument Avenue is born out of the series of six monumental statues that mark major intersections along its path, some of which is still paved with asphalt blocks from 1907. 14 blocks of the road are considered a National Historic Landmark. The beginnings of this grand residential boulevard go back to May 29, 1890, when the towering monument of Confederate General Robert E. Lee was unveiled for the first time. For the story behind this colossal representation of Lee, we went to the Library of Virginia to talk to a man who was a co-chair on Richmond's Monument Avenue Commission. That's a group of people tasked with giving the city's mayor recommendations on what to do with these monuments cast in bronze and sculpted in stone. So I'm Greg Kimball and I'm the Director of Public Services and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. Greg's been in Richmond since the mid-80s, and we asked him why he was drawn to the South from his native New Hampshire. I didn't know what I was doing out of high school, so I went in the Army, was stationed in the South, and being a New Englander, I was pretty fascinated by Southerners and their history. When I did my graduate work at Maryland, I was thinking, yeah, I'd I'd like to work in the South. Uh, That history fascinated me. Terp for life. That's literally a phrase I got on a keychain when I graduated. Not going to talk about what year. 
I still have it, by the way, that keychain. Always a shout out to a fellow Terp on this podcast. But it was really being around a lot of Southerners because there are so many Southerners in the Army. And so one thing about the South, I think, in terms of the United States as a whole, first of all, it's produced a lot of our culture. Elvis and barbecue and all of these other things. I mean, that's what, one of the things I identify with the South. But yeah, Civil War definitely was a part of it. My father was a military man. He had a great admiration for General Lee. This was something that happened after the Civil War that Northerners, I should say white Northerners and Southerners kind of reconciled with each other. That's when these people became heroes, whether it was Grant or Lee or Stonewall Jackson. And that was pretty mutual. You know, these were considered to be heroic figures of the war. The South won the propaganda war <laughs> after the Civil War in many ways, and this is one of those ways in which it did. After Lee's surrender at Appomattox in 1865, Richmond had to find a new identity. To replace its previous designation as capital of the Confederacy, citizens were still looking for ways to remember fallen fathers, brothers, and sons through this period of Reconstruction. The trajectory of Confederate memorialization is interesting. There's some early ones, like they bring all these bodies back from Gettysburg, for instance, of Southerners and rebury them in Hollywood Cemetery. You may know there's this really very powerful, I think, pyramid that's built by this Ladies Memorial Association that you see there. And it's very much about mourning. It's mourning the dead. It's not a glorification of war or of leaders. But the planning for the glorification and remembrance of Robert E. Lee began much faster than you might think. Just hours after he died in October of 1870, women from that memorial association moved to raise money to erect a statue in Hollywood Cemetery. A similar group of former Confederate officers started their own fundraiser to honor Lee in Richmond. Possible sites included both Hollywood Cemetery or Capitol Square, near the statue of George Washington. But these statues are not cheap, and the city didn't have a lot of extra money to throw around after the Confederates burned Richmond as they fled their capital just five years prior. And with the two groups not agreeing on how to build it or where the statue should go, the idea stalled for well over a decade. Eventually then, you start to see things that are starting to honor Confederates. So, 1875 in Capitol Square, you have a statue of Stonewall Jackson. Standing statue, not on horseback. But the start of these memorials to Confederate generals wasn't popular with everyone, even just 10 years after the war. And one of the interesting things we found when I was working with the commission, looking at Miami Avenue for the city, is that some of the black delegates who were serving in the House of Delegates at that time objected to that in a fairly strenuous terms. We don't have much of the voice of African Americans in this story because they didn't really have a newspaper until the 1880s. They were represented in the House of Delegates and the Senate of Virginia in larger numbers than we probably imagine, but 
We just don't have a lot of their words to, to fill in that story. But in this case, in 1875, statue is actually given by these, uh, as it says, I think, on the, on the base, uh, by English gentlemen. They were simply trying to appropriate money to build the base for it. And these delegates, these black delegates said, no, this is, we don't want to honor this guy. You know, what are you talking about? In the years following the Union victory, a Southern movement began to gain momentum to change the narrative of the Civil War. There's this whole thing they call the Lost Cause, which you kind of have to unpack. There literally was a book called The Lost Cause. And in it, it basically argues that North didn't really <laughs> win because it was right. It was simply force of arms and bodies. Like, they had more people, they had better weapons, and they subdued the South. And that then was created this whole cottage industry, in, in a way justifying secession, the Southern view, downplaying slavery as a cause of the war, talking about plantation slavery as mild. And this, I mean, that's, I'm not exaggerating. These are the terms people used. Textbooks were very carefully monitored to make sure they didn't offend Southerners. So all that was going on, and that, that led eventually to Monument Avenue and, and other expressions of the Confederacy. That brings us to the mid-1880s, when the idea of the Lee statue finally begins to take shape. Like a lot of the monuments, uh, there was some infighting going on. So there was a, a woman's group who advocated for a statue design that had been done by Edward Valentine, brother of the founder of the Valentine Museum. There was a veterans group, a men's group, who favored the Mercier, the, the French sculptors as that we see today. And honestly, I'll be, I'll be blunt and say, from an artistic perspective, it's probably better that they won that argument. But in fact, what happened, there was so much conflict about this and competing fundraising going on, the state actually stepped in. The Commonwealth took over the building of the monument, essentially. The man leading this new state task force, called the Lee Monument Commission, was none other than the newly elected Virginia governor, Fitzhugh Lee. If that name sounds familiar, he's Robert E. Lee's nephew and a former Confederate officer himself. In the commission's first official action in June of 1887, they chose a site for the monument just outside the western boundary of the city limits. The land was a gift from a friend of Governor Lee's named Otway Allen, a prominent businessman who not only offered to donate the land, but also to build two intersecting boulevards around the monument. That's why today the Lee statue sits at the intersection of Monument and Allen Avenues. Lee was on kind of the margins of the western part of the city, a fairly unpopulated area. This fellow Allen, who owned the land, thought this was fantastic because he's ready to launch his, what we'd call today, housing development. That's probably too, uh, uh, too crude a word to put because, because some of the houses that are on Miami Avenue. But uh, yeah, he was basically a developer. And so he saw this as a great opportunity to sort of start to build the city out to the west. 
commission's choice of a foreign sculptor outraged those who wanted a Virginian to honor the Virginia-born general. But the international fame of the French artist Mercier, as well as Lee's daughter Mary going to Paris herself to inspect his prior work, helped to calm the controversy and assure advocates that the rendering of Lee would be of the highest artistic quality. Let's talk about the design itself. And for those of you that don't have a picture of the monument in your mind already, hit pause, Google it, get that mental image ready. As the largest statue on Monument Avenue, the Lee Monument rises out of the ground with a 40-foot granite pedestal that is topped with a 12-ton, 21-foot high bronze statue of the Confederate general. Lee is facing south, sitting calmly on a horse whose head is bowed toward the ground, appearing to be walking rather than rearing for battle. Many believe the horse is Lee's famous companion, Traveler, but that is not the case. Mercier thought Traveler's actual proportions would not look right for his work of art, and instead he crafted a new horse with the proportions he was looking for. Lee is turned slightly to his left, appearing to gaze far into the distance. He's dressed in his Confederate military garb, holding his hat in his right hand. That's the look of Lee that Richmonders are familiar with, but it was actually Mercier's second design. The first was meant to show Lee as he passed dying troops on the field of Gettysburg, the horse rearing towards the sky, and those close to death reaching out for one last look at their leader. In an interview with the Richmond Dispatch newspaper, Mercier said he could not recall in history an incident in which a defeated general was greeted with such affection and confidence in the very hour of defeat. But the Lee Monument Commission wanted Mercier to create a second design with no reference to the slaughter at Gettysburg, instead expressing what they felt was Lee's character and nobility in the face of defeat. They also wanted the new Lee Monument to complement or even rival the Washington statue in Capitol Square. Mercier agreed to raise the monument so it was taller than that of the founding father. Washington rises 60 feet above the ground. Lee. 61. The commission wanted all four legs of the horse to be on the ground, to appear like the famous image of Lee and Traveler, though Mercier obviously took those creative liberties when he crafted the new horse that wasn't Traveler. One thing Mercier was adamant about was that Lee's face not be covered, which is why he holds his hat in his right hand. To be as accurate as possible when it comes to Lee's physical features, Mercier drew from the actual frock, spurs, and boots Lee wore in battle. For his face, he used Lee's death mask. I know you want to know more about that, because I certainly did. That death mask concept is a practice that dates back to ancient Greece, but mostly died out at the end of the Civil War with the emergence of photography. People would have plaster masks made of their faces either in their later years 
or as closely after death as possible, as a way for people to remember their facial features. Thank goodness for photos and videos. This was something that Lee commissioned while he was president of Washington and Lee University following the war. Upon his death, an American sculptor crafted the mask and copies were made, one which influenced Mercier's work that looks down on Monument Avenue today. A lot of Virginia legend points to the significance of the direction Lee is facing, so we asked Greg Kimball about it. There's absolutely no historical, <laughs> no historical uh, document I've ever seen. I think it was totally made up post Monument Avenue once they were all up there. There's no, nothing in the Lee papers, for instance, indicating that he was positioned. Well, I can't remember her facing, whatever direction he's facing. I, I just don't think there's any credence to that, but it's, it's a great old Virginia myth, certainly. You may have heard stories about the positioning of the horse. Some saying on different Confederate statues, the number of hooves on the ground indicates how the man died. Never seen any documentation of, put it this way, I've never seen, certainly people have written about this or said this is the case in newspapers, etc. But there's nothing, say, in the papers of the people building the monuments that, hey, let's face Lee this way because of X. No, that's, that's not there. Back to 1890, now that Mercier's design was accepted, the next hurdle was actually getting the tens of thousands of pounds of material into position, including 24,000 pounds of bronze atop a 40-foot granite pedestal. This is May of 1890. There isn't enormous machinery or equipment to help. It's all hinged on brains and brawn. Nine separate bronze castings were shipped from Paris to New York and then to Richmond. They arrived by train along Broad Street in four crates. One of the things that they did do that echoes the 1858 equestrian statue of Washington in Capitol Square, citizens actually pulled the statue up to where it would be positioned using ropes. Probably there was some aid going on there, but one of the legendary artifacts of Virginia history that a few institutions have are pieces of those ropes that people kept as you know, souvenirs of that moment. That citizen participation in the event itself has a lot of deep meaning. That's a part of that story that I think is, is really interesting. That's right, in 1858, Richmonders helped haul the bronze Washington statue from the docks along 17th Street to Capitol Square. And then, just 32 years later, did the same thing for Lee from the rail cars along Broad Street. It's estimated that between 10 and 20,000 citizens participated in this ritual homecoming of sorts. Taking turns hauling the statue of their former leader. And just as with Washington, those ropes were cut into pieces and handed out as souvenirs. 
This brings us to the day Monument Avenue was born, May 29, 1890. The unveiling attracted national attention, and some estimates put the crowd size at around 150,000 people, more than the city's entire population at the time. It marked the largest gathering in Richmond since the inauguration of Confederate President Jefferson Davis in 1862. It was a huge civic uh, moment in the history of the city. Obviously, there were many veterans who were still alive at that time who came to, to pay homage to their great chief, as they called him. So it was. It was, it was quite an amazing event. So it's May 18, 1890 is when the monument is erected. And important to recognize when it was erected, there was no Monument Avenue. It was never planned at the time that that statue was erected. That all came later. The big day began with a parade that wound through the city, passing Lee's former home on Franklin Street, moving to Main Street, turning through Monroe Park, and ending up in the area we now know as Lee Circle. Lee's nephew and now former Virginia Governor Fitzhugh Lee served as Chief Marshal, followed by more than 40 other Confederate generals, former governors of Confederate states, and some 15,000 veterans. It is a really interesting time, but can you imagine how poignant that is for a soldier, say, who served in the Army of Northern Virginia under, under Lee? Some of these men served the entire war and lost many, many of their, of their fellow troops. And in that sense, you know, it's, it must have been a very powerful moment for them, even to some degree justifying their place in, their place in history. It is hard to imagine the, the carnage of that war. Navy even now, recently, due to historical research, started to push the estimates of the number of dead higher than the 600,000 odd that we have talked about for so many years. I mean, this was devastating, let alone the civilian loss of life. It's hard, people want to justify that kind of human sacrifice, right? They do it by talking about the heroism on, on, of the soldiers. With Lee, he becomes this very, almost Christ-like figure. The enormous crowd gathered around the veiled monument, and as with any ceremony, there were speeches remembering the Confederate general, many citing the righteousness of the lost cause. Then, Joseph E. Johnston, the man who Lee replaced to lead the Army of Northern Virginia in 1862, pulled the rope, releasing the veil. Newspapers at the time reported the unveiling was followed by a great cheer from the thousands in attendance. Cannons boomed, muskets fired, hats and handkerchiefs thrown into the air. Some Confederate veterans openly wept, looking at their beloved commander. I think it was really the crystallizing of this lost cause. The other thing was just a practical matter. This was not cheap to do. And, you know, the South was in pretty rough shape after the Civil War. There wasn't a lot of money to build, you know, grandiose statues of people. So I think it somewhat symbolizes the recovery, eventually, of Virginia and the South economically. But clearly it is also lays down a marker for what would come later with Davis and, and the other monuments. You know, Lee was just this re deeply revered figure. My favorite stories about him, which I think is also pretty well known, is that 
editor of the Richmond News Leader, who was his biographer, Douglas Southall Freeman. Douglas Southall Freeman wrote Lee and his lieutenants. Probably knew him better than anybody else in terms of as a historian of that period. But he was also a Southern man. And the story goes that every, every day when he went by the statue, he saluted General Lee. Um, that's the kind of reverence people had for him. And as you can imagine, not all of Richmond was thrilled about this massive monument to a rebel leader. One person to speak out at the time of the Lee Monument dedication is the African-American editor of the Richmond Planet, John Mitchell Jr. This is a man who had served on city council in Richmond before Jim Crow was imposed. And he did say, this is, this is not good. This is not something we should be celebrating. It's a turning backwards from Reconstruction, a period when Americans first got to be citizens, and now we're moving in the other direction. And sure enough, 1902, you have a new constitution that essentially disenfranchises African-Americans. So there are voices of protest. At the end of the unveiling, Mitchell argued the monument, quote, handed down a legacy of treason and blood to future generations. Northern newspapers compared Lee not to George Washington, but to Benedict Arnold, the most famous traitor of the American Revolution. One New York paper proposed that Congress pass a law banning monuments of Confederate heroes and the Confederate flag. Meanwhile, the New York Times called Lee brave and honorable, going on to say that Lee's memory is a possession of the American people. No matter what people's view, it was a really, really important moment in the city's history. For 11 years, Robert E. Lee's monument stood alone in a field on the outskirts of the city. As development in the area was basically non-existent. The first trees weren't planted until 1900, and the first house wasn't built until 1901. A man who visited in 1905 described the statue as the vague center of two or three crossways. But that would change in 1907, when the Jeb Stewart and Jefferson Davis monuments were erected and unveiled along the same street, creating a spine of monuments that would only grow in number as the years went on. It was then that this street became one of the most fashionable places to live in Richmond, something that lives on to this day. There are now six statues along Monument Avenue, five honoring men of the Confederacy. And it should go without saying that all of them were white men, the last of them being unveiled in 1929. The sixth statue honors a black man, Richmond native and tennis legend, Arthur Ashe, though that spectacle honoring Ashe didn't happen until 1996. Richmond struggles with the future of the Confederate monuments lining this historic street even today. Just recently, a massive monument known as Rumors of War was unveiled on the lawn of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, not far from Monument Avenue. It features a young African-American figure dressed in urban streetwear, sitting atop a horse. Kahinde Wiley crafted the piece 
as a direct response to the Confederate monuments, the figure's pose based on that of Jeb Stewart's statue. I'm a black man walking those streets. I'm looking up at those things that give me a sense of dread and fear. What does that feel like physically to walk a public space and to have that your state, your country, your nation say this is what we stand by? No. And today, we say yes to something that looks like us. We say yes to inclusivity. We say yes to broader notions of what it means to be an American. Valerie Castle Oliver is the curator of modern and contemporary art at the VMFA. Oftentimes you go into museums and you do not see yourself reflected. And what he does is he allows the everyday person to see themselves reflected in the art world. I think it, it certainly expands the conversation of who gets edified, who really gets memorialized, and in what capacity. It is a moment in history. It is a historic moment. I mean, we know that cities and communities uh, evolve, and oftentimes contemporary artists are engaged in writing history as it happens. So this really takes that conversation to the next level. In the summer of 2020, a new law is set to take effect, allowing Virginia localities to decide what to do with Confederate monuments. But the city of Richmond can't make any decisions about the Lee Monument because it doesn't own it. The Commonwealth of Virginia owns the Lee Monument as well as a certain plot of ground basically around it. And that is because of, of this early history that the Commonwealth sponsored it, completed it, did the work on it, and still maintains it. The only entity that could really do anything with that monument would be the Commonwealth itself. Because Greg Kimball served on the city's Monument Avenue Commission, we had to ask him about the future of other statues in the River City. It's a neighborhood, and there's a conversation there. Who gets to decide? Is it the people on Monument Avenue? This is, again, their front yard. Is it the city of Richmond? Monument Avenue is known all over the world. Who's the community that gets to say, this needs to go, and we're gonna build this, or we're gonna change this? You'll see people reacting like, oh my God, you're, you're changing history. How many books are there on Robert E. Lee? No. You could buy hundreds of them on Amazon right now. The history of Robert Lee is not going away if his monument goes away. Is it a significant artifact? To me, it is, that, you know, given my line of work. Uh, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. We need to do something with them. I'm not sure what, because they're so massive. But they are artifacts of a time that are significant. Do they have to be on Monument Avenue? That's a whole nother question. Day Wiley piece is an interesting example of playing off of the existing statues. Now, a major artist can do that, but these things are massive. They make their own statement. And just putting up a bunch of words in front of them, does that really do much to bring some nuance to thinking about what they are? I guess my bottom line was, when we have this kind of monumental architecture or, or statues, 
They're saying to someone who comes into this town from somewhere else, this is what we stand for. This is, you know, this is Richmond. This is one of our, I, I call our front, front porches. Like we're saying it's, it's a statement. They're not just things that are standing there. Is that what we want our community to be identified with? Do we simply need to balance it with other representations of people who have not been represented? Kimball says the meaning of these monuments change over time. Think about that. Just because a colossal monument is constructed during one moment in time doesn't mean it will be viewed the same way forever. So I think they acquire meaning and the meaning evolves over time. I don't know that they ever have one meaning. It's kind of a truism of, uh, of history that just because people have a notion that history cannot change, but history isn't what actually happened. History is the story we tell about what happened. And the story we tell about what happened can change based on new evidence. You know, we don't interpret the Vietnam War the same way we understood it when I was in the military. And I think the, those kinds of things are changing all the time and it's just natural. It's not bad or good. We see it through the prism of the present and we always do. That's just that's the way it is. That's what history is. Yes, there are facts and I believe in them <laughs> very strongly. Uh, uh, I don't want people to do bad history in that sense. But how we assemble those facts into a story that we tell ourselves, a lot of different ways to do that. May 29, 1890. The revered general of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, is immortalized in bronze, high above the outskirts of Richmond. For some, he is an icon of the lost cause of the South. For others, a traitor who deserved no such honor. Lee's legacy depends on who you ask. It remains complicated even today, 150 years after his death. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. It wouldn't happen here. It won't happen in this city. And then it does, and then you're kind of left dumbfounded. May 31st, 2019. We as a city, we as a community, we as a region will not be defined by the act of one person of evil. Virginia Beach. My supervisor came up and whispered in my ear that there was an active shooter and it was just kind of surreal. There were tears, there were hugs, there were just raw emotions because we could see the police outside of the window. It's very heartbreaking. It's very sad. It's, it's very emotional. The United States was once again trying to come to terms with a devastating loss of life. I haven't been able to talk a lot about it. I'm in the building next door. I wasn't in the building, but we work with those people. They will be in our thoughts and in our prayers every single day when we walk through those buildings.
12 people, gone. One of them a contractor, just trying to get a permit. The 11 others, city employees. One of them had worked there for 41 years. It could have been me or my mom or dad or close friend. The crime committed by a city engineer appearing to randomly target people where he worked in the municipal building. A motive still not clear. I was probably the last person to talk with Wayne. He was brushing his teeth like he always does after he eats something, and I was washing my hands and asking him if he had any plans for the weekend. And we both walked out telling each other to have a good weekend. There was nothing by his mannerisms or countenance that would tell me that this would happen. Nothing. It's a story we hear again and again. Some people inside barely escaping with their lives. On May 31st, I survived a mass shooting at the Virginia Beach Municipal Center. Jack Jones was an intern on the third floor of Building 2 when the shooting began. I heard a bang, poked my head out, and that's when I saw the shooter with a, with a gun drawn. So fight or flight kicked in and I ran out through the door screaming gun. I said, I think I just saw my, my boss get shot. SWAT teams and medics swarm the building, many trying to rescue people trapped inside this nightmare. Incredibly, they were able to go through while bullets were still flying. Being there, it's fast moving. You don't really think of it at the time. You just go because that's what we've been trained to do. One of the victims, Ryan Keith Cox, saving at least seven others before going back inside. Mr. Cox had an option to save himself, but he chose to go and find others to save, and he lost his life. A father's message for his son, gone too soon. I'm so proud of the way you live, and I'm proud of the way you die. I believe him to be one of the finest men that God ever made. The gunman was eventually killed in a shootout with police. You know from season one how I feel about naming the people who do these shootings, so we're not going to. Doesn't matter. What matters are the Ryan Keith Coxes of the world. The feelings of fear stretched across the Commonwealth, feelings too reminiscent of Virginia Tech in 2007. Virginia Beach, 2019. You get really upset that you're having to do that. Sorry, it just like scares me. I wouldn't want my kids to be in a situation where they're in danger. The search for answers, the why, it's always what we want to know. Why did he choose to kill coworkers? That search continues today. The findings of a final report are expected to be released in the fall of 2020.
May 31st, 2019. It happened again. A mass shooting right here in Virginia claims the lives of 12 innocent people. We don't know why the gunman did it. We may never know. What we do know is the memories of those lost to senseless violence remain part of Virginia's fabric forever. Here on How We Got Here, there's a piece of audio I try to work into every season. Think Stan Lee making a cameo in all of his Marvel movies. Or Sam Raimi in that 73 Oldsmobile Delta 88. The audio I want to work in, I just love it. It's fantastic. We got it from St. John's Church in Richmond for season one for a story about Patrick Henry's death. It was in that very church that still stands today that Patrick Henry gave his famous speech that ended like this. Give me liberty or give me death. (laughs) I can't do it like he does. My producer Colton, who writes a lot of the words I read, not all of them, but a lot of them, wanted to ban that audio forever. So did my brother John. He'd send me text after text, telling me not to use it again. But that is not going to happen here because I'm the host of this podcast and I've got another story about Patrick Henry, meaning it is my time to shine. Bring on the DePompa remix. Let it come! Forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Forbid it! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! Okay, I'm done. For now. We can't give St. John's Church enough credit for this, by the way. It was May 29, 1736, the day Patrick Henry was born. He was born in Hanover. His father was a, a Scots immigrant who had married well. You may remember that voice from season one Episode one, we went back into our archives. Wait, this is season three. We have archives now, right? That's John Kukla, a historian who lives in central Virginia. He's studied the history of the Commonwealth for about a half century, and he is the premier expert on Patrick Henry. Young Patrick attended a local school for a few years before getting the remainder of his education from his dad, who was college educated. At 16 years old, Patrick and his older brother opened their own store, which quickly failed. At 18, he married a 16-year-old named Sarah Shelton, whose dowry, a gift from the bride's family, was a 600-acre farm called Pine Slash. 
But that venture came to an end when the house burnt down in 1757. He tried his hand at storekeeping. Again, he failed. Things were not going well for young Henry. So he decided to help his father-in-law at the Hanover Tavern, which was across the street from the county courthouse. It was then that Patrick Henry started reading about law. Took the bar exams in about 1760, practiced law for several years. In 1763, launched into, into prominence in a complicated lawsuit called the Parsons Cause. Two years later, this lawyer won a seat in the House of Burgesses, or colonial government, in Louisa County. Henry, you know, made his name with his arguments in the Stamp Act. That dreaded Stamp Act, a direct tax on the colonists requiring a sum to be paid for basically any printed material. I hated learning about the Stamp Act. I could never remember what it was. I didn't understand the importance when I was 15 years old. But here we are now, talking about the Stamp Act. Henry and all of Virginia really are primed to oppose the Stamp Act, arguing the issue of the autonomy of Virginia's colonial legislature versus the powers of King and Parliament. Uh, Henry's resolutions on that occasion, very influential, they get spread throughout most of the colonies. Many legislatures adopt versions of them, and in a very real, real way for, as Henry saw it and as a lot of his contemporaries saw it. These were the opening, you know, the opening strokes of what becomes the American Revolution. And we all know what that means. And then most famously, of course, is in 1775 when the Virginia Revolutionary Convention meeting at St. John's Church is debating whether or not to arm the militia, whether or not to put the colony in a, in a state of military readiness against Great Britain. Henry introduces resolutions to that effect and then supports them with, uh, with the speech that, that made him famous. Bring on the speech from a reenactment in its entirety. Our chains are forged, their clanking may be heard upon the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come! Mr. we speak for peace, sir. It is in vain to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that blows from the north shall bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that they wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!
May 29, 1736. Patrick Henry is born in Hanover County. He would father 17 children, over two marriages, and even serve as Virginia's first governor. A patriot who fought to preserve individual liberties in a fledgling nation, leading to how we got here today. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Digital Director Kate Albright, for your masterful mixes of all these episodes. And Executive Producer Colton Weekly, the wordsmith. You are both my favorite coworkers. You know that, right? Shh. Don't tell the rest of the team. Also, let's do this all over again, okay? Don't worry, everyone. We have a bonus episode next week. And a special thank you to our guest this week, John Kukla, the historian who knows everything about Patrick Henry. Don't worry, I'm not going to play the audio again. There's always next season. And to Greg Kimball, the Director of Public Services and Outreach at the Library of Virginia. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.